0: And I am jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro record wreck 2 podcast, also pro-John Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched Repo, the genetic opera, which is a sci-fi dystopian opera, with also horror and gore in it. It's also got, like, rock elements. It's not strictly opera, but it's
1: got... It's weird. It wants to be Rocky Horror Picture Show.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a cult classic, with all of... What that entails. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we're seeing within the week. John and I have had a pretty quiet one since we've gotten started on what we're doing next week. Lawson, what have you been up to?
1: Well, first off, I saw Zack and Miri make a porno. But enough about my trip to the local community centre. I imagine you're asking me about what movies I saw <laughs> this week. Yes. Now, Zack and Miri make a porno is a comedy... I, I probably wouldn't call it a romantic comedy. It's just a comedy. Directed by Kevin Smith. Follow some long-time platonic friends, Zach, played by Seth Rogen, and Miri, played by Elizabeth Banks, who find themselves broke and unable to pay their rent. And, uh, the well, the title should tell you what they do. Um, they decide to make a pornographic film, that they will star in. And of course, this tests their relationship. I mean, this is Kevin Smith responding to the rise of Judd Apatow. It really is. <laughs> well, it is. It's him trying to do the Judd Apatow routine with a lot of improv, the sitting around bullshitting between friends, you know, stuff like that. It's a very crude, rude and explicit movie, but it works because it has a heart to it, because it's charming, because it actually has some dramatic heft in some of what it's doing. The third act, especially, that is something that I... I've always appreciated about Kevin Smith is that even when he goes to his silliest and crudest, there's always a thought towards something more genuine at the centre of it. A very strong cast here. Rogan and Banks have great chemistry together. Craig Robinson is very funny in a supporting role, but Justin Long and Jason Mewes both sort of steal the show. In supporting roles. It's very improv heavy, as I mentioned, but it's cut really, really well in the editing room. It flows really well. well I, as I said, it is Kevin Smith doing the Judd Apatow thing, but in this instance, I think he does it better than Apatow, because Apatow has v- a very jarring editing style a lot of the times, where you can tell he just couldn't bring himself to cut that joke. And there's literally over an hour and a half of deleted and extended scenes on the disc that show you that. Kevin Smith absolutely is willing to cut a joke if it disrupts the flow, if it jars anything.
0: Well, that's what I've always liked about Smith as well. When he does his comedies, he's mercenary in the editing room. And Mm -hmm. Apatow just can't bring himself to kill his babies. And especially when it's something so improv-heavy. You gotta be.
1: Not always. He got better about it as his career went on. I think This Is 40 was pretty well handled in that regard. But I mean, a lot of like 40-year-old version particularly knocked up. I mean, you could always tell. It was like every different shot was from a different take and none of these actors were actually bouncing off of each other because they were, like, the time-space continuum, they were was different, you know? That's not the case here. I will say that some jokes have aged badly, some, some language that we wouldn't accept anymore, but generally I think it's amiable. It has a predictable conclusion. I mean, you've already guessed it the second I read that synopsis. You know how this movie's going to end and it does it doesn't deviate from that whatsoever but that's fine you know it's it's fun it's pleasant on the journey to getting there and i did discover just writing my notes about this and thinking about it my brain defaults zach to z-a-c-h instead of z-a-c-k mm. and i don't know why that is well
0: because zachary has the ch mm. i think that that's what your brain is doing
1: who knows? It's I just found it a weird little thing that just, ever, I kept misspelling the name when I was making my notes. But it is available for streaming in Australia on Netflix and Stan. I, of course, also finished off the Wreck series. I didn't include that at the top here because I had that Dynamite Zack and Mary make a porno joke that I needed to work in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we talked about the first two recs last week, so I continued on with Rec 3 Genesis, which is directed only by Paco Plata. It is taking place simultaneously with the others, and it is set at the wedding of a woman named Clara. Letitia Delera plays her, to a guy named Coldo, played by Diego Martin. But unfortunately, one of the guests is a veterinarian who works at the vet clinic that the dog from the first movie went to. And has a bite on his hand Uh, that's making him act a bit weird. So this is actually kind of interesting. After Wreck 2, Jean Balaguero and Paco Plaza, who were the co-directors of the first two, decided that they were going to finish off the series by each directing a movie solo. Uh, And this was Plaza's turn. They clearly didn't have a story idea Mm. for two more movies. And I think it's a weird misstep two go in the direction that they do here the first 20 minutes of rec 3 are found footage but after that it abandons it uh, kind of with scorn actually the wedding photographer who is recording everything once shit starts popping off like they get really angry at him and destroy the camera because he's keeping on filming and it's almost like a kind of it's almost scorn directed at the Mm. style of the first two movies in a way that i found kind of and m- misjudged.
0: That transition, though, is kind of fun. How like, destroy the camera to do it. its I kind of like how it runs counter to the whole record-everything-record-everything yeah. record everything mindset. I mean,
1: it's it's comedic. It's yeah. too comedic. I mean, it's fights set to pop ballads. It's people running around wearing literal decorative suits of armour as protection. It's a guy dressed up as a... Anthropomorphic sponge that is named John Sponge, and and like a big thing is how this hotel has to make sure everyone knows it's John Sponge and it's not SpongeBob SquarePants because of legal reasons. <laughs> it's such a different tone to those first two movies, which is fine. I mean, you can shift tones and and make more comedic things. I mean, Thor Ragnarok is a movie we all like. The Evil Dead movies went in that direction to a lot of success, but this movie isn't nearly as funny as it thinks it is. And it has a problem in blending the comedy with the drama. It turns the drama into melodrama in a way that doesn't seem intentional, but ends up making the drama seem like almost a parody. It's got a very confused tone. I mean, it's entertaining, but it's just not a wreck movie. And I can't escape the feeling... That it's so thoroughly unimportant. I mean, like I said, this is taking place simultaneously with the first two movies. And you remember where you left us at the end of Wreck 2, and now you're just going to go flitting over here and doing this thing that's like entirely unrelated to everything that's going on in that A plot. It's a distraction. It feels like a distraction, but it's very well filmed. It makes the most of the normal camera you know, the the omnipotent third-person point of view that the camera has now, and Pablo Rosso returns as the cinematographer, and he does a good job with the more traditional tricks he gets to pull out. It's larger in scope than the first two movies as well. There are very big crowd scenes, there are lots of chaos. I just don't think that they had the plot for the agreement that they made to split it up like this, and that stays a criticism I have of Wreck 4 Apocalypse, which is the installment directed by Balaguero. In it, the survivors from the apartment building are sent to a cargo ship in the ocean for safety, while tests are done on them to make sure that nothing's gone wrong, along with a blood sample from one of the infected. And that is where it all goes wrong, because of course that blood sample ends up infecting new people and starting a new outbreak on this cargo ship. It's an improvement on three, but again, they're just out of ideas Ditch is found footage completely this time. There is no found footage. But the tone is at least far more consistent than Wreck 3's. It takes the idea from the very ending of 2 and it builds on it in a way that I'm not sure that I like. It's not explored well enough. It's It almost feels... I mentioned it last week that Wreck 2 did such a great job of embracing the ending that Wreck yeah. 1 backed it into and expanding on that. This movie doesn't. It very quickly becomes a, a just a zombie movie on a cargo ship. And it's clear that they've run out of inspiration. The characters aren't very distinct. You're just sort of waiting for them to get picked off one by one. There's an actor named Hector Colomb who's playing like the the scientist in charge of this boat, who is a very fun presence. But other than that, it doesn't really have a lot of personality to it. it. I mean, it looks good, it's very atmospheric and dark. Of course, the boat sails right into a storm just as the shit starts hitting the fan, because, you know, it wouldn't be thematically appropriate if it didn't. You know, it definitely corrects from three, but that X factor is gone. It's a little bit of a whimper for a series to end on, a series that had a lot of zest and personality up to this point. I next saw Milk. It is a biopic directed by Gus Van Sant, and it follows Harvey Milk, played by Sean Penn. The first openly gay person, to be elected to public office in California in the 1970s. He was elected to the role of San Francisco's supervisor, which is basically a councilman. That's what they call councilman, basically, in San Francisco. He was an activist, a campaigner, a leading light of gay rights, until he was murdered in City Hall, along with his political ally, Mayor George Moscone, played by Victor Garber. They were both shot dead by a disgruntled former supervisor, Dan White, played by... Josh Brolin. Harvey Milk, an incredible guy with an extraordinary story. He faced stereotypes about gay people head on. He he faced criticism and and you know homophobia head on. He would start his speeches with My Name is Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you. A really incredible guy. But what a tedious, unenergetic version of the story. I mean, it has the that those same tedious problems that every biopic has. It's too austere. It's too traditional. It's too conservative. Does It has the same problem that so many biopics, they just can't seem to bring themselves to pick a specific point to focus on. They've got to tell us the whole life story of the person. And it really jumps around a lot throughout his political career, skips over a whole bunch of stuff. It uses narration from Milk as a as a crutch to really just do a Cliff's Notes version of his life. It's at its best whenever it's focusing on the gay rights movement and the movement in San Francisco that he was a part of, the confrontations with the, you know, socially conservative bigots, debates with politicians who were trying to pass homophobic legislation. That stuff's all well done. And they've got archive footage of these real-life people and real-life interviews and things that, you know, the horrific bigotry that was on display at all times, basically, that is kind of eye-opening for people like us who have lived our whole lives in an era which is far from perfect when it comes to gay rights, but a hell of a lot better than the stuff that's on display here. The handling of Milk's personal life is incredibly bland and uninteresting, He has two boyfriends throughout it, first James Franco and then Diego Luna, but not enough time is spent on either of those two relationships to tell us anything about them or to even really sell us on the attraction between these characters, why they should, especially the one with Luna, why they should be drawn to each other. It often feels like it's just ticking off the checklist. This this must be in here because this is how biopics work. But the performances are all good. Penn, Brolin, Emile Hirsch, Dennis O'Hare, very strong performances. But acting aside, I mean, it's a bit of a TV movie kind of thing. It feels a bit like a movie of the week a lot of the time. The story deserved something stronger. Harvey Milk deserved something a little more transgressive than this very austere traditional version of his story. I next saw Frost Nixon. It is a historical drama directed by Ron Howard. It's based on the Peter Morgan play of the same name. It's based on the Peter Morgan play of the same name. And it is set after the Watergate scandal, when Richard Nixon, played here by Frank Langella, was resigned from the presidency in disgrace. Uh, And a British talk show host named David Frost, played by Michael Sheen, lands an interview with him. And... He is out to get great ratings and to basically try and weasel a confession out of Nixon, but Nixon is a slippery operator. This is a very interesting postscript to Watergate. This whole interview is kind of like a duel. That's how they, they frame it. They pretty much say as much in the movie itself. I mean, it's a boxing match almost.
2: It's titled Frost yeah. versus Nixon.
1: Yeah, they're, they're trying to land blows on each other to take control of the narrative. And the interesting thing is that Frost... Especially at the time, he gained respect because of this event. But at the time, not a not a serious journalist. Think a more intellectual Jimmy Fallon. He was he was a talk show host. He yeah. was interviewing the Bee Gees. He wasn't he wasn't someone who was out to make headlines with his political interviews. And he's presented here as as out of his depth. as really struggling to cut through Nixon's bullshit. The accuracy of this seems. Muddled at best. It seems from the research I've done that Frost was not nearly as out of his depth as this movie makes him. But the the counterpart to him there, Nixon. That's the more interesting part of this dynamic. He sort of wants to take back control of his narrative and views Frost yeah. as someone that he can steamroll and use to exonerate himself in the public eye. Langella doesn't look the part of Nixon at all, but he gets the voice. And the tone right, um, and Sheen is absolutely excellent. The interview stuff is is way more dramatic than it actually was in reality. The very famous part of this interview is was when Nixon, the closest he came to admitting illegal conduct, was. Oh, well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. That's the big famous quote from this. And when he said it in real life, he said it in a fairly calm and even tone. But Frank Langella says it in like a bark, like a guy who's lost who's lost control of his composure and, and then immediately comes to this mortified halt with a pants-shitting expression on his face as he realises what he just said, which if it had happened in real life would be the defining image of Richard Nixon as sitting there with like a, a shocked look on his face as he realises he just said this thing. I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. I mean, it tries to elevate the drama a whole lot more than it actually was. I'll let it pass because that interview stuff is really good. These these long exchanges between them and the parts outside the interview sag dramatically in comparison. Like I said, I've got a bit of a problem with the way that Frost is presented here because he's he's kind of hard to invest in him when he is presented as such a lightweight and sort of a lightweight by his own making, by not doing the research, by not committing as seriously as he should, which again, the accuracy of that seems muddled at best, and he seems only interested in fame through a lot of the movie. And there's really no great arc for his transformation to serious journalists at the end. It's it's just... I mean, I get the appeal, and it's very well written, it's very well performed, but there are just... I I think, some problems that kept me from fully embracing it. It's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now.
2: Nixon is one of those people who is very specific. Like, when you're performing him, you have to get it really, really good.
1: Uh, In any case, that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching?
2: Like I mentioned before, we've had
0: kind of a slow week because we've... <clears throat> had to prepare for what we're doing next week. <laughs> we need to start early on that runway. So I've only watched one other thing this week. Jackass Forever.
1: Oh, God. Which is the
0: fourth <laughs> Jackass movie. Celebrating the joy of being back together with your best friends, except for Pam and a perfectly executed shot to the ding the original Jackass crew return for another round of hilarious, wildly absurd, and often dangerous displays of physical comedy, with a little help from some new exciting faces. Johnny Knoxville and the team pushed the envelope even further in Jackass Forever. So, everybody knows what Jackass is. Uh, John, what did you think?
2: Oh, and on top of this, we also watched uh, Jackass 4.5, which is the sort of...
0: The supplementary documentary material stuff.
2: Yeah, behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. yeah. more stunts and all of that kind of thing. I like seeing these idiots hurt themselves. <laughs> The stunts they do are so wildly creative, but this is not for everyone. This is the lowest brow you could possibly get. Shit, piss, dicks, they're all over the place. The movie starts with a massive dick joke. And if you're not on the movie's wavelength, you're not gonna get it. Uh, We watched this with our parents. Mom turned to us and said, I feel dumber having watched this. (laughs) And that's... Some of the appeal, it is that the joy of just watching these guys hang out with their mates in everything that hangout entails. Yeah, Johnny Knoxville, I don't understand how he does it. I don't understand how he got cast as the voice actor for Leonardo in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live-action film. That was bizarre, but he's funny here, steve And, you know, the rest of the Jackass gang and, the obviously, the new people they've got really help bolster this fun atmosphere. Also, I love seeing some of them get hurt. My god.
0: Yeah, Dave England and Aaron McGay, his working name is Danger Aaron.
2: Yeah, they do a number on him. Mm. He's the one they target the most, and it's just hilarious.
0: Like John said, you have to be on its wavelength, and... I disagree with what my mother said. I don't feel dumber having watched it. I feel much, much smarter. At least much, much smarter than them. But it is good to see them back all together, Except for Ben Majera. <laughs> Johnny Knoxville still has it, remarkably. Steve-O looks like he's in a much better place than he has ever been making these yeah. movies. He looks healthy. Which is weird, considering the stuff he puts in his mouth in this one. And the shit he puts himself through. But, like, Dave England and Danger Aaron, I love seeing those two frighten. Uh, There's this whole sequence near the middle of the movie that they've called Silence of the Lambs. They've put them into this room where they say they're going to be doing interview stuff. Then they slam the door, turn all the lights off. Then Johnny Knoxville goes in with night vision goggles, with a stun gun, and... Basically terrorizing them. Then eventually, when they try and run out one of the doors that cracks open, that's full of marbles on the ground, tasers hanging from the roof, and uh, pins and mouse traps on the table that they try to lean themselves
2: on. It's not tasers on the roof, it's pots and pans. Pots and pans, yeah. There's tasers, <laughs> hung, hang, there's tasers
0: hanging from the roof as well. And it just made me think, you gotta head, have your head on a swivel. On those jackass sets, because you never know. You have to always think that the toilets are going to explode. You have to think that at any point you're going to be struck out of nowhere. And Johnny Knoxville's always got a taser on person at all times. You get the sense that these people have formed a community over the course yeah. of things. This is 10 years after the third jackass movie. They've got some new blood in there, like Sean McEarney, Zach Holmes, Eric Monaco, Rachel Wolfston. And a bunch of other guys. It's... They fit so naturally. These yeah. new people, especially Zach Holmes. Uh, But then you've got the director of this thing, Jeff Tremaine. He's been there the whole time. And even he takes part in some of the nonsense as well. Especially the 4.5, which is the documentary thing. You could see that they've brought back basically all of the crew that they had on the past movies. And it's... Remarkable that sense of community they have. Also, this is one of the movies that was being shot during the pandemic. They froze production from March 2020 for seven months, and that's a very interesting portion of it, because you would expect them to be very haphazard, but no, they were incredibly rigorous with the COVID safety guidelines.
2: They take it very seriously. They took it
0: incredibly seriously. Well, Well,
2: aside from one moment.
0: (laughs) uh, At one point, they were doing this... They set up a table for this uh seminar from a person from the CDC. It wasn't actually from the CDC. But under the table, they had a inflatable castle, like a bouncy castle. And they inflated it when everyone was sitting at the table, and that was hilarious. It's not for everybody, clearly. But I always get a kick out of it. It is funny to see them do this stuff. It is funny to see them throw their entire bodies into this. And it's just good to see them hang out, you know? Over the past few years, it's been very isolating. I know that it's starting to come out of it, especially at the start of this year, but seeing them just having a good time together, be it throwing giant medicine balls at one another or whacking each other in the genitals, it's still fun and kind of heartwarming and sweet in a lot of ways. I don't know, it it hits different compared to the other ones.
2: Yeah, you can see that they really enjoy their time with one another, and they are a family. They're just a big community, and they're all working to the same goal of trying to make the most entertaining film that they can. And it is heartwarming to see such a sense of community, particularly in this time. Are
0: they going to do another one? I've got no idea. I would like them to but I don't know. Yeah.
2: I'm concerned. Johnny Knoxville around a bit.
0: I'm concerned that Knoxville's going to
2: kill himself one day on one of these damn things. He he got absolutely nailed by a ball this time. And it gave him like, he had, he definitely had to go to the hospital. I don't know how many more hits he can take before, you know, it's sort of game over lights out, sweep the popcorn away. He's done. I
1: mean, he's over 50 at this point. Yeah, Yeah,
2: Like, It's remarkable how he's still up and moving.
0: Uh, How Steve-O is still up and moving.
2: Steve-O has another 10 years in him, but I think Knoxville's going to have to... They're about
0: the same age. Like, Steve-O's only a couple years younger.
2: Yeah, but Steve-O's gotten injured far less dramatically than Knoxville has. If
0: you go back to those early ones, he went through the ringer. One of my favorite things that they brought back was the cup test. So they've got professional sports people, like a hockey player a baseball player, and eventually in the 4.5, there's a professional bowler, and they put Aaron in front of them, just wearing a cup, and the sports people have to strike him in the cup.
2: It's a cup test.
0: It's honestly remarkable feats of not only pain tolerance, but also accuracy by these sports people. It is honestly sometimes beautiful to look at how precise these people can be.
2: If I can find a clip of it, there's something that the hockey player says to him before he hits him, and I'll put it here, because it's one of the most brutal things I've ever heard someone say to another person. It's ice cold. Hey, Aaron! Don't joke, you're fucked! But you
0: can find Jackass Forever, and I do believe the rest of the Jackass movies? On Paramount+, Plus. you can find Jackass 4.5, however... On Netflix.
1: That's bizarre. That
0: is weird. I don't know why that's the case. Surely you'd put both together on the same yeah, service. Yeah, who
1: knows what like weird Byzantine contractual yeah. thing is motivating some of these things. I like, again we're in the, the wild west of the streaming wars at the moment. I mean, with all of these services going international and expanding and contracting and mm. whatnot, I I imagine that ten years from now it'll all be a lot make a lot more sense, but god. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Tube will have started streaming in HD by then. <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe. I'm not letting that
1: go. I cannot believe <laughs> that.
0: Like this is this is the year of our Lord 2022.
1: Linear broadcast television has been coming to <laughs> us in HD for almost you know, going on twenty years now, that possibility. Yeah. YouTube has streamed in H D for like 12, 13 years. Yeah, over a decade. Have you seen those pictures
2: of the cast of the that Amber Heard Johnny Depp movie?
1: No, I haven't. I'm going to look that up right now. Oh,
0: oh yeah, because uh, for those of the audience, this is a little tangential, but we're only 34 minutes T-B
2: in. has no shame. Uh,
0: be has no shame. Not only are they doing another Amityville movie, ugh, they're producing it themselves. Uh, but Oh,
2: that's going to be fine, I But think.
0: they're doing a series on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial.
2: It's a movie. It's
0: a movie. I mean, come on, Tubi. You're going to stream that nonsense to me in s- standard definition?
1: Oh, God. Mm-hmm. This it looks like the most low budget. Oh, it's already out. Mm-hmm. That was announced, like, less than a month ago.
0: Yep. I'm Jesus. not watching that. Didn't watch The Trial. Not interested in the, in the
2: movie.
1: But hey, hey, Lawson. Tubi is free. Well, yeah, because how can they really justify asking anyone to pay for it? You pay for HD. They would be absolutely justified in putting out an HD stream without ads. that they, they You pay not a lot of money, but some. Yeah.
2: Oh, some of the movies that they put on their service Don't can't have. even be put in HD. <laughs> I mean, come on.
0: It just makes me sad that Tubi is still alive and kicking. Seemingly going from strength to strength when... I still mourn
2: Quibby.
1: Oh, come on!
2: Fuck Quibby! Come on, Harley. You can't. I don't know. I... You can't equate the two. Quibby was a broken concept from the moment it came out of one of their brains. I
0: know, but it was like it was like looking at one of those dogs that has the smushing in faces that can barely breathe. It's. <laughs> There's something adorable about the attempt, like like the weird broken science that needed to be done to make this possible. It's it's sad.
1: I cannot wait for the inevitable behind-the-scenes book of The Rise and Fall of Quibi.
0: I want to see it as a series.
1: Yes, that will be the final indignity, won't it, is the six-part Netflix series about Quibi. No, no, no. To be original. Yeah. Ooh. Like Okay, I'm on board for that. To be, by the way, I'm just looking has over 50 million active Mm -hmm. users worldwide. Yep. Yep. Um, And I'm one of them. Yep. You're adding to that. For my sins. Like, just... I've done more advertisement for Tubi
2: (laughs) Tubi than Tubi has for Tubi.
1: (laughs) That is roughly the same amount of of, uh, users as Peacock.
2: Oh, man.
0: (laughs) If you're Peacock, you're... If you're NBC Universal you can you're not gonna be happy about that.
1: Well to be fair, I let me just double check this. Tubi is available in the United States, Canada, Latin America, and Australia and New Zealand. Peacock is available No, I do not mean the animal peacock. Okay, yeah, yeah. Peacock this is actually much worse for Peacock than I initially thought. Because Peacock is available in the United States, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Austria, Germany, Italy, Switzerland and the Nordics much larger countries.
2: (laughs) Mm. Come on, Peacock. Hey, Leprechaun and Leprechaun 2 are on Tubi.
0: You can't let Tubi creep up on you like that. Mm. You got studio behind you. Pull the finger out. Hey, Black Christmas is on (laughs) Tubi. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to Repo, the genetic opera. By the middle of the 21st century, organ failure had become a
1: worldwide epidemic. But Geneco was there to satisfy the demand for organ replacements. The problem is, if you miss a payment, Geneco sends out the Repo Man. And when he finds you, your time is up. This payment has passed you. Everybody, everybody!
2: Stand up! People, people, people! Everybody, everybody! Everybody! Look what I've become. It's me, she must escape.
1: That was the trailer for Repo the Genetic Opera. It is a gothic musical directed by Darren Lynn Bousman, and it is based on the stage musical of The Same Name, written by Darren Smith and Terence Zdonik. The film is set in the year 2056, by which time an epidemic of organ failures has decimated the population. Mankind's unlikely saviour is GeneCo, an inscrupulous megacorporation whose advanced technology revolutionised organ transplants. In the wake of what appears to have been a total collapse of regular government, Jinko has taken control in the resulting hellscape. They are far from benevolent, however. Though their organ transplants will save your life, you must pay for the privilege. Don't worry, though. Jinko has a robust payment system. But be warned, those who don't make good on their debts will find their inside bits subject to repossession. It is, in effect, a death sentence. The founder of Geneco is Rotty Largo, played by Paul Savino, who has just been diagnosed with a terminal disease that not even a transplant can cure. He's thinking about succession, but finds none of his lunatic brood to be a palatable option. His daughter Carmela, played by Paris Hilton, is addicted to both cosmetic surgery and zydrate, the miracle drug that helped make Geneco a success. At least she's better than his sons. Luigi, played by Bill Moseley, is a homicidal thug prone to going apeshit at the slightest provocation. And Pavi, played by Nivak Ogre, is a serial killer who enjoys wearing the skinned faces of his victims. Roddy's search for an heir must therefore take some out-of-the-box thinking. He zeroes in on Shiloh Wallace, played by Alexa Vega, a 17-year-old girl confined to her home due to a rare blood disorder she inherited from her deceased mother, Marnie. Her father, Nathan, played by Anthony Stewart Head, is a doctor who works obsessively to find a cure for her affliction, but Shiloh is unaware of his tragic history and relationship to Jinko. You see, Marnie used to be Roddy's lover, until she fell for Nathan and married him. Furious, Rotty bided his time until Marnie's blood disorder offered the perfect opportunity for revenge. He replaced the experimental cure Nathan was working on with poison, tricking the poor guy into thinking himself responsible for Marnie's death and leaving him the widowed father of a newborn. That wasn't enough, though. Rotty used the information to blackmail Nathan into becoming a repo man, one of Jinko's hitmen, who track down defaulting transplantees and violently foreclose on their organs. Years of this work has left Nathan a little bit cracked, and now, with his own time running out, Rotty moves to entice Shiloh to join him at Jinko. There's just one thing that stands in the way, an obstacle that Rotty will need Shiloh herself to remove if his scheme is to be a success, Nathan himself. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of Repo, the genetic opera, why don't you start us off, shiny you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go.
2: I really enjoyed this. It's not going to be for everyone, but if you're of a similar vibe to the movie, you're going to get a lot out of it. The music is fantastic. The lyrics can be a little bit, you know, on and off, but the music and the vibe of it is immaculate. The three best performances in the film are Paul Savino, Sarah Brightman, and Anthony Stewart-Head.
1: Alright, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go.
0: I like this. Uh,
2: I love the aesthetic
0: that they've gone for here. I love the design of the Repo Man himself. I think that's really striking. And the design of the world is really cool. I love the comic book Interstitials, but this has a total of 58 songs. Not all of them hit, A lot of them, I can take a leaf. But when they really hit, they really hit. And that comes down to a lot of the performances of the singers here. Uh, John mentioned most of their names. Anthony Stewart Head is fantastic.
1: All right, let me cue myself up here. Sounds like I am the coldest on this out of the three of us. I think this is a movie that is incredibly ambitious and unique, but has bit off more than it can chew. It doesn't have the resources and it doesn't have the underlying skill to do what it wants to do and while I enjoy the music a lot I find the lyrics to be very wobbly and I actually think most of the performances Sorvino and Head aside are mildly embarrassing. Mm. So I have a production history here. This began life as a stage production which was originally called The Necro Merchant's Debt. In 1996, actor-musician Darren Smith had a friend who went bankrupt and a lot of his possessions went into foreclosure. And from this, Smith began to consider what the most dystopian end-stage capitalism version of that would be and thought of the idea of repossessing organs. He brought the idea up to Terence Stunick, who he had met in a acting class at the South Coast Repertory Theatre, and they turned the idea over and over in their heads and slowly developed it into a short stage piece that they called, as I said, The Necromerchant's Debt. They used it as part of a theatre-slash-music initiative they began in 1999 called The Gallery. They would play LA clubs performing what they described as 10-minute rock operas. They were three-song short stories, and The Necromerchant's Debt was the first of these that they did. And this early version of the story was about a grave robber in debt to the repo man. After positive reception, they began working on an expanded version that they ultimately renamed Repo, The Genetic Opera, and it became the basis for what this film is adapting. This version premiered on stage in 2002, but it would continue to develop over the next few years with gradual changes made to characters, plot, and music. These productions caught the eye of director Darren Lynn Bousman. He teamed with Smith and Stunick to make a short film version in an attempt to get funding for a feature. Uh, In it, the Repo Man is played by Michael Rooker, and it also features Shawnee Smith, from the Saw franchise, Amanda from the Saw franchise. Boozman probably got Smith because he had joined the Saw franchise to helm Saw's 2, 3, and 4 after James Wan had vacated the director's chair. It's easy to connect the dots, given that the short film pitch was ultimately bought by the Saw production company, Twisted Pictures, and its distributor Lionsgate. After Saw 4, Boozman went on to make Repo. There's very little info on the filming, but Smith and Zdonic are both in the film. Zdonick plays the grave robber, and Smith is the MC that bounds into the room at the start of We Invented This Opera Shit in the finale, the Testify Guy. Hmm. The project's origins in clubs and its rock aesthetic also won it the participation and support of many singers and musicians. That's why Joan Jett randomly shows up in the 17 number. But it was very much an indie production. They did what they could with what they had. For instance, the first time we see Parvey, the face that he's wearing is a mould of Darren Lynn Boosman's girlfriend's face. She was there. She was cheap. They, they used her. Lionsgate might have agreed to release the film, but they didn't exactly give it a big coming-out party. The promotion of it was minimal, to the point that Bozman Smith and Stonick did much of it themselves. Along with some cast members, they took it on what they called... The Repo Road Tour, which did one-night-only screenings in seven different American cities, followed by Q&As. These proved to be highly successful, though, and so they actually expanded it out to two more tours, as well as a shorter British tour. The film did receive a tiny US theatrical release on the 7th of November 2008. It came out in only 11 theatres, and it opened number 46 at the box office, against Madagascar Escape to Africa, Role Models and The Boy in Striped Pyjamas. It's hard to say whether this was a financial excess or not, since it seems so clearly geared towards second-run revenue, like DVDs and online rentals and purchases and things. But if you're just looking at the theatrical takings, it's pretty dismal. $188,216 worldwide on an $8.5 million budget. It came out in literally one Australian theatre on the 5th of February 2009. It opened 40 at the box office against Transporter 3 and Changeling and it made $5,939 of its gross hit. Critics were predictably bewildered by this movie. I cannot think of a movie that was more likely to throw critics in pretty much the basic conception of what it's trying to do than this. It has a 37% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and it Consensus there reads, bombastic and intentionally gross, Repo the Genetic Opera has a unique style but lacks the wit and substance to be involving. The film didn't get really any award recognition of note, although it did win one Razzie Award. It it won for Worst Actress for Paris Hilton, which I think is an overreaction.
2: Oh, they got given that award for simply casting Paris Hilton.
1: Yeah, the Razzies had like a weird, you know... Hate streak for Paris Hilton. She was nominated for five Worst Actress awards in the two thousands and won four of them. Mm. Uh, she was also awarded Worst Actress of the decade in twenty ten. Yeah, they had it, they had it out for her in a weird way. Mm. But the filmmakers had always dreamt of doing another movie. Two of them, actually. They had, the plan was to do a prequel that would then be followed by a sequel. But of course, given the generally niche reception, Lionsgate wasn't interested and they owned the rights. Eventually, they had to give up. And in 2012, Zdunik and Boosman reteamed on a 55-minute spiritual successor called The Devil's Carnival, which is another rock musical, but this time set in hell. The devil is played by Zdunik in that. It also featured returning Repo cast members Alexa Penavega, Bill Mosley, Nivik Ogre, and Paul Sorvino as God. Yep.
2: yep,
0: those ones are much more successful as musicals.
1: They followed this with a feature-length sequel called The Devil's Carnival Alleluia in 2015, which added Barry Bostwick and David Hasselhoff. I want to start here with a compliment, because I do enjoy this movie, even if I do think its eyes are far too big for its stomach. Yeah. It is ambitious. It's packed with a ton of great ideas. I don't think they're very well organised, but there's so much that this movie is thinking about, so much it's taking on, so much that it's trying to do. It's just not working within its means.
0: I love that idea of the repossession of organs. That's really, really cool. That's such an interesting idea and that's, that's one of the logical outcomes of the American healthcare system. You have your organs and bones out on loan. And if you can't make the payments, they come to collect. And that's such a, that's such a neat idea.
2: And I think the opening really shows how this has decimated humanity. Like, one of the first things we see as we get that helicopter shot, and we see just the ocean full of dead bodies. And we just see... That the entire city that they live in is built on top of a graveyard. The world
0: that's been created here is a very fascinating
1: one. Yeah, to, but it's also not explored very well. No. Like, I'm never quite sure exactly what the scope of all this is. Is this the only city left that's functioning? How many of them are there? You know, because literally, a lot of these corpses just aren't even buried. I mean, there's that scene at the beginning when Shiloh goes to the graveyard and there's just a big warehouse full of hundreds if not thousands of corpses lying out in the open on top of each other
0: i think it's when you're wealthy enough you can actually get buried Mm. if you're not you just get stacked up and eventually burned
2: well i mean there's a lot of people who are addicted to xydrate and all of these drugs and stuff and a lot of people who are destitute because of it not to mention all the
0: people that default on their payments
2: exactly there's there's not a lot of people who are going to be able to collect your body, so what do they do when it's a John Doe who no one knows? They chuck it in the hole.
0: It's such a brutal, disgusting world, and that's one of yeah. the most fascinating elements here.
1: But this is the thing that I don't- yeah, I agree with you, it is one of the most fascinating elements, but I also don't want to give the movie too much credit, because it is using, it's using it as aesthetic, yeah. rather than actually drilling into it in any great degree. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm not asking for everything to be explained. You don't have to explain anything, but there isn't enough world building here to be satisfying for me. I mean, something like Blade Runner, right? You never get like a big history of what happened to bring the world to the point that we find it in Blade Runner. You never get some big ream of exposition that tells us all of that. But... You get enough contextual clues to piece together the society and the hierarchy and just generally what the state of play is in the world that, you know, Harrison Ford is roaming around in that movie. I don't get that here. I guess you could say the
0: story here is way too insular.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's insular, but it's also, I I don't think that the script is well done enough to... No. It, it's not an elegant enough script or a thoughtful enough script to give us that information through implication. Guzman, as a director, is, I don't think, talented enough to do that visually, and I also don't think he has the resources, mm. really. I mean, I think one of the great indicators of this movie's threadbare budget and, indeed, some of its failings is those comics sequences. They clearly just don't have the money... Mm or the time, or the resources to actually film those flashbacks in any great degree. So, you get not even narration. You just get, like, musical accompaniment over... It's, it's almost like a silent movie where you cut away to the interstitials with the mm. stuff written on it. And...
0: It's a necessity.
1: It's a necessity, but it, it gives it an amateurish feeling yeah. because it's not working within its means. It could have been, like, that's the thing I said in in what I was saying at the start of this podcast, like, the very, very start of it, I said it wants to be Rocky Horror Picture Show. No. But what it doesn't seem to realise is that Rocky Horror Picture Show understood what its restrictions were and worked with those restrictions. Yeah. Whereas this, this goes too big. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I do agree that it goes too big, but I appreciate what they have been able to do in terms of some of the world-building they've done. I like how they've built the sets, and I like how everything looks. It's very goth, it's very punk, it's it's right up my alley, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, the aesthetic's cool. The aesthetic's cool in this sort of, like, neo-noir, yeah. mixed-with-cyberpunk kind of, like...
0: It's a dystopia. Plus,
1: plus, like, a bit of, like, HR Giga wrapped in there, just yeah. in terms of, like, the idea of these, you know, cosmetic... You know, the face falling off of Paris Hilton and stuff like that. But I think that there's just a sheen of cheapness yeah. over it. You, I never, ever believe that I'm in a space that exists with characters. Even when it's just a street, I can always tell that this is a sound stage.
0: Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact that this started off as... A musical that went on the road. This started off as something more, you know, sort of small and intimate. It wasn't taking it to big places, it wasn't taking it to big theatres. It was just a small production that was there for and, I don't know, fun. And it,
2: it's a passion project. It's a
0: passion project. And I think And that's
1: the challenge I suppose yeah. for musicals is that when you're on the stage you get a lot of buy-in from the audience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that I'm criticising here wouldn't be as big of a problem on the stage because part of the the unspoken contractual agreement between the audience and the people that put on stage plays, stage musicals, is the fact that we all just pretend that we're not sitting in a room watching people on a stage with very little backdrop. You know, we pretend that they're actually in a room with four walls and that there isn't all these people sitting there staring at them in the dark.
0: Yeah. Like, with a movie, we expect more.
1: Yes, with a movie, we expect a greater presentation of verisimilitude, which is always the problem. And I I do wonder, actually, whether – I've been thinking about it in my head – whether Repo actually falls into this weird sort of limbo space where it's – I will forgive a movie for being really cheap – But it's – this movie isn't quite cheap enough to get that reaction from Mm. me, you know. There's enough professionalism to it and there's enough production value to it for it to stand out in its cheapness in a way which – I mean, I watched those – I watched some clips of the Devil's Carnival stuff. That is, like, being made for less than a million dollars. Like, that is cheap as chips. But it works. Exactly. That, That I'm like, okay, I can see the whole let's put on a show thing here, I can see that this is a passion project, whatever, whereas Repo, in having that $8.5 million budget, starts to seem too professional for me to excuse its unprofessional shortcomings.
2: I get that, I do get that. I'm sort of not as hard on the movie about that as you seem to be, because I am seeing what they're aiming for, and I can appreciate that a lot, because the music has a lot of goodwill for me that lets me push past some of the... Hmm. misgivings. Let's move on to that.
1: Favourite song. Ooh, Jesus.
0: Favourite song. Uh, I just gotta get to the song list. There's 58 of these bastards.
1: For me, it's Legal Assassin.
0: Yeah. That one's very, very good. That's a very good one. Basically, the Anthony Stewart head stuff. Yeah. I mean, come on.
1: I do like We Invented This Opera shit, but Legal <laughs> Assassin is the only one that, like, works for me... Legal Assassin's the only one that I added to my Spotify.
2: Mm. Fair enough. So the ones that I really like are Legal Assassin, 21st Century Cure, Zydrate Anatomy, Night Surgeon, Chase the Morning, Seventeen, Gold, Chromagia, Interrogation Room Challenge, which is like a a small reprise of other things, and Let the Monster Rise.
0: For me, it's got to just be uh, Legal Assassin, 21st Century Cure, Hydrate Anatomy, Night Surgeon. I think Night Surgeon mainly because it's Anthony Head, Paul Savino, and Paul Savino looks like he's having the time of his life. Yeah, and also I quite like Chase the Morning as well.
1: There, are, there are a lot of elements that I like in a lot of this. I really like. I think the music, as a general rule, is pretty great. I think they nail the music. The lyrics, though. Some of them really work. Like some of them are written well, but then some of them land with a massive thud. Well, um, that's
2: what that's because it's being sung through.
1: I wouldn't even go that far. I think that there are parts that that are just like cheesy and yeah. The actors can't make them work just within the lyricisms of the songs. Hmm. The sung through stuff is I mean there are parts of that that don't work, but I'm actually thinking more of some of the stuff within the actual songs. And you mentioned some of the ones that... Some songs that you like, and I I agree with you that some of them are... I like some of them. I can always find, like, a bit or a piece of them that I really enjoy, but then there's, like, stuff around it that prevents it. Like, the Chase the Morning. I love the little hologram uh. singing, the Chase the Morning, Yield for Nothing. But then all of the Sarah Brightman around it is the stuff that I'm like, okay, I didn't need that. You know, there there is just... Like, it changes tone and I'm not with it anymore. And there are just parts like that that just prevent me from really investing. Like, again, I find myself torn because on the one hand, I want to give it a lot of credit because it is doing something that is really ambitious. That, like, I I believe that more movies... If more movies were as ambitious as this movie is, we would have so many more interesting stories out there. Even though I'm mixed on the result... I think it's absolutely a sum positive that this movie was made, that these people have gone on to make more movies in this style. I think that that is a cool and worthwhile thing. I just... When I have to zero in on and analyze this as a piece, like, and this is the thing, if we're sitting here to have an hour-long conversation about it, yeah, I'm going to have to start picking apart the things that really don't work for me. Whereas if we weren't, I could just say, eh, didn't work for me as well as I wanted it to, but I... You know, A for effort and move on.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about one of the things that we've all agreed really works here. Anthony Stewart Head.
1: Mm. I love Anthony Stewart Head. Ever since, I think, Buffy was the first thing I saw him in, he's great. I love how he he can be this very... He's one of those character actors with a lot of range. Yeah, yeah. He, he can be very warm. He can be funny. He can be, you know, a fatherly figure, but then he can be... Sinister, and have a harder edge to him as well.
0: Because you watch it, like, a while before we record these episodes. When you Mm. were watching it, you texted us and sent to the group chat, Anthony Stewart Head should have played Sweeney Todd.
2: Yes. And Yeah, this movie is basically an essay on that.
0: (laughs) He nails that dichotomy between warm and loving and chilling, cold, and kind of psychotic.
1: Yeah, the way that he has this, like... Almost like a separate personality yeah. that takes over when he's when he goes to work. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's. I'm just picturing in my head the Sweeney Todd, like he was already on the set because he was going to yeah. do that. He was going to be in that song that got cut, and so he's just left there with that cameo. But just get rid of Johnny Depp and put Anthony Stewart <laughs> Head in there.
2: The dude's got the range. Mm. I mean, you hear a song like, as we said, "Legal Assassin" or "Night Surgeon" or even "Thankless Job," which. I mean, that song in and of itself is basically Tom Waits. That's a hell of a performance from Head in that one. It shows that vocal range that Todd needs mm. and almost seems inspired somewhat by Sweeney Todd as a character.
0: I, I love that aesthetic of the Repo Man. Mm. That's such a weird comic booky thing. thing, yeah. and that really works for me. I especially like that bit where he's removing that dude's spine Not only is that brutal and the practical effects are really good there, the makeup in this movie is actually really, really strong. You find out that that dude financed his spine. Mm. And that's that's a holy shit moment of itself.
1: Well, that's the thing is I'm not entirely sure, not to go back to the world building too much, because I feel like we've moved on from a lot of that, but like, I'm not entirely sure what the deal is. I mean, they're telling me this is this epidemic of organ failures, but, like, there are people with the spines and things, and then there's this whole other cosmetic surgery angle.
2: That might have been someone who wanted to be able to walk again or something. There's the whole organ failure
0: thing. There's the whole cosmetic surgery thing. But it's also for very specific necessary surgeries as well. Like, that dude might have been in a serious accident and needed a replacement spine.
1: Yeah, I'm just never sure how the world has gotten to this point, and even how the world functions as is. Mm.
2: They give you two different songs trying to tell you about (laughs) it, but it doesn't seem like it's enough.
1: I do think we're always on stronger footing when we're focusing on Shiloh and Nathan and Roddy.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: That when we start to expand out and touch on things that are beyond those three characters and their own personal stories... We start to get into stuff that I don't think that the movie has, again, the resources. But also, I don't want to be too unkind, but I also don't think that the creative team is talented enough for a lot of what they're taking on here. Mm. We're not dealing with the people who made Rocky Horror Picture Show here. No. We're dealing with the people who want to be the people that make ro- Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. So, we're not getting the same level of artistry. I mean, Darren Lynn is a guy that, frankly the second third and fourth saw movies is probably what he should be doing you know that's about his level
2: mm. he did Spyro as well
1: yeah and i just feel i sorry i thought you said spyro for a minute oh that would be funny <laughs> spyro the dragon movie directed by darren lindper's mom <laughs> <laughs> again it's every everyone's trying their best everyone's doing their best but other than head Silvino, and I think Stunik. Stunik does really yeah. well as the grave robber. And whoever whoever was the guy that did the the music, I think it was either Smith or Zdunik, I can't remember which.
2: I think they worked together on it. They, they right. worked together and the music was produced by Joseph Bishara.
1: So all of those elements are, are things that I like, but I feel like they aren't as good at all of the other things yeah. for it to mesh properly.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about Sorvino here.
1: He might actually be my favorite part of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Anthony Stewart Head. Like, of all of the actors in this movie, Anthony Stewart Head is my favorite one. But Paul Savino's thing here is he—he's the only one where actually, like, the the weird dichotomy between his singing and his speak singing, mm. yeah, works in a really interesting yeah, way. He is. The
2: opera in this. Yeah. Him and Sarah Brightman bring that opera, operatic, stage-bound sort of musicianship to the show. And here's
0: the thing. You can tell Solvino is having the time of his life here. He came back for Devil's Carnival and Devil's Carnival 2. Like, that shows you how much fun he had on this set. That shows you that he just wanted a chance to do something a little less... High art, and you know, and that's really cool to see from Paul Savino.
1: I love the weird pseudo rapping he does in the car yeah. on the right away to the graveyard. Fashion, fashion, dust. My children were reversed, they shall inherit nothing. No. <laughs> My legacy is too great to throw away on grace had potential they stole my money away in denial Nathan blamed himself for money's sudden death and never once thought to suspect the man who wrote
0: his checks I guess I'll take it to my death
1: <laughs> it's awkward but for whatever reason it's working for me it's in a so way so. that yeah
2: and it, it is voice too my god the power he can put behind it is just glorious to
1: behold
0: if you think he's good here he gets to do a lot more of his opera stuff when he plays god in devil's carnival
1: yeah that's the thing for all the criticisms i have of these of this movie i do want to see the devil's carnival's movie now because like, like i said although i'm not totally on board with the execution i am really interested in the ambition yeah again it is one of those things where i feel sometimes that i need to re-emphasize when i criticize something doesn't mean that i don't enjoy it Mm. You know, when I actually stop down and unpack something and analyse it, yeah, on an objective level, you start to find things that don't work when you start to think about them. But that doesn't mean that when I'm sitting there watching the movie and following the story and the characters, I'm not having fun with it. I mean, for me, entertainment-wise, this is probably a solid four out of five. Mm. It's just, if I was going to judge it subjectively at a movie... It's pushing two and a half at best.
0: We do come from an emotional place when we're recording this podcast, but we're also people who have been trained to look at the objective facts of the filmmaking abilities here.
1: It's like how how Cats, for me, entertainment-wise, is a five-star movie, 24 karat gold. (laughs) On a technical level, it's a mess. On a technical level, like probably you'll look, I I wouldn't go for the, like the dismal ratings that it gets. Two out of five would probably be where you'd land if you were really examining. It's the same thing. Like I I named Shadow in the Cloud my favorite movie of last year. Objectively, that is not the best movie of the year. I mean, Tragedy of Macbeth is probably the highest quality movie. Like there's always yeah, there's always a dichotomy between inside you there are two wolves.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: you know that's the thing that I I feel I got to get it across sometimes here
0: most of those elements are worked through because of that again restriction of budget that both of the devil's carnival movies have and those work remarkably well maybe not so much with the second one but the first one is really really strong
1: i will say that there's an appeal an amiable sort of feeling of everyone's having fun. Yeah. You know, there's this sort of let's put on a show atmosphere that is is appealing as a viewer and is contagious as a viewer, even if the result is not technically Mm. all that strong. I mean, it's sort of like the idea of community theatre, right? Everyone's having a lot of fun, everyone's putting their all into it, but none of these people are going to Broadway.
0: And ultimately, that's what the show started as. Mm.
1: I love the fact that the most operatic that the
2: film gets... In terms of its narrative where everything is literally just coming to a head and everything is happening. It's all happening on a stage. Hmm. That's a really neat touch. It's a really interesting choice and it works for me because the entire thing is melodrama. It's soap opera and it's, it's opera. Let's talk about some of the other performances here.
1: Let's talk about Shiloh for a bit. Yeah. Because she is ostensibly the main character. I think we've glossed right over her because she's not very interesting. Mm. Alexa Penavega, the the lead actress from Spy Kids, I think she's far from the worst. But she is one of the examples of how the cast, other than Head, Silvino and Stunick, don't exactly carry themselves with yeah. great, you know, respectability in this. It, it's interesting. Vega is a singer. She is done professional singing, and so is Brightman. You know, obviously, Sarah Brightman originated the role of Christine in the Phantom of the Opera. But it's interesting. Everyone other than Sorvino, Stunick, and Ted fail one of the two things. They fail either the acting or the singing. For Vega and Brightman, I would argue they fail the acting. For pretty much everyone else, I'd argue they fail either the singing or both. Mm. I'll get to that in a minute. But Vega, I think... She's a little unfortunate in the sense that her character has been has been basically- I mean, the role of Shiloh is as the prop. The, the mm. thing that two far more interesting characters are warring over. Mm. I'm way more interested in what's going on with Nathan and Rottie than I am in the teenage angst of Shiloh. I'm
0: more interested in the day-to-day operation of the Repo Man.
1: Part of that is that Silvino and Head are both much more compelling performers Mm. than penna vega is i mean again i don't think anyone really does great things with this material other than a select few but i also think if you look at the other roles that penna vega has i think she's certainly a capable actress but she is not on the level as some of her colleagues here but also the way that the role is written is fairly bland yeah i'm not quite sure that anyone can reasonably describe shiloh as a character beyond you know headstrong and lonely mm.
0: Like I think she does the job but it's nothing too you know memorable I like Zidanech here obviously he's very very much tied to the work itself but the grave robbers singing in it very very good stuff because mm. he functions as kind of on the radar here
1: and I feel like the grave robbers stuff especially the um, addicted to the knife little glass vial I mean that scene in the alley Zydra comes in a little glass vial
0: a little glass vial? A little glass
1: vial! And the little glass vial goes into the gun like a battery. And the Zydrate gun goes somewhere against your anatomy. And when the gun goes off, it sparks in your are ready for surgery. Surgery. The Grave Rubber stuff is the best that the lyrics get, mm. I feel. Mm. Where they, they really nail the rhythm and the patter of that in a way that a lot of the other songs... They have way less clunky lines in them than a lot of the other songs it's do. It's
2: interesting because I watched a few behind-the-scenes things for this, and the way that they went about writing zy Anatomy is that it's sort of like a lullaby in the sense that it's got that repetition of
1: the point. I just want to read some of these lyrics out loud to really get what I mean. we are like, when you zoom past them, in the songs maybe maybe you just accept them but like i watch everything that i watch with subtitles because i want to make sure that i follow everything exactly it's just something i've done as soon as as soon as i got a dvd player when i was like seven i was like you mean i can read the movie at the same time that i watch it such a nerd
0: (laughs) we're big subtitles people as well we don't want to miss anything
1: well you guys talk so much during the movie i you can't (laughs) do it without subtitles 17 and you can't stop me. 17 and you won't boss me. You cannot control me, father. Daddy's girl's a fucking monster. Between Roddy and Parvey and Luigi. See your knife. See it glide. See it slice. Who's your night surgeon? Hope you have my money. Or it's Bon Viaggi. He'll do your ass like dishes. I mean, these are not, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstone they're not, you know? There's a level of like, it's, it's just that thing. I said it before. It's, it's like just that level between total amateurism and actual true professionalism mm. that makes it stand out all the more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get that.
1: If you squint, you can see it. And then it just is, it adds this other thing. It's like, Oh, okay. If this, if they had started their careers 20 years later than they did, I feel like Sonic and Smith would have been YouTubers. Mm. Like this would have been a YouTube production that got adapted. You know, yeah. It has that same level of just slight amateurity.
0: I know I keep referencing Devil's Carnival here, Mm. but, like, Devil's Carnival has a sort of... It follows through a lot nicer because it's got a particular thread that it follows. Most of the songs are based on Aesop fables, Mm. and those songs are much better written than all of the ones here. They keep that same sort of charm, but again, they were a lot tighter lyrically.
1: But anyways, yes, let's move on to Roddy Largo's kids, who I think... Okay, I'm going to... Let's start with this guy, Ogre, Mm. who, stage name aside, does, I think, probably the best job out of all of the three kids here. Yeah. Um, He's basically playing Jared Leto in House of Gucci. (laughs) Yeah, I... Or, you know, to be fair, Jared Leto in House of Gucci is playing Ogre in Repo <laughs> Genetic opera. Yeah.
0: Like, he's going so over that it kind of hmm. ends up working.
1: Oh, and I think you need to. Yeah. Because this guy's walking around wearing other people's faces. <laughs> yeah. I mean-
0: And because he's ostensibly Italian.
1: Yeah. But his aesthetic prevents any emotional expression on the face, yeah. you know? Yeah. So he kind of needs to be as big as he is. And that is kind of like, of all of the weird flourishes, right? Of all of the weird, like, extra bits in the characterization that, like, that's the one that I like the most is mm. the fact that this guy is just this sadistic serial killer that is killing people and wearing their faces. Because that's the kind of what the fuck that I can get behind. Because it, it, because in some ways it's entirely self explained, right? Yeah. You know, it's none of that other thing where it, it draws a bigger question, or plus the performance supports it.
0: He's just a crazy dude who wears another person's face.
2: And I think Ogre has, you know, history with this kind of extreme performance. He's the lead singer and lead musician in the industrial metal band Skinny Puppy. And the whole thing with that is very much this Alice Cooper thing of very crazy stage performances where he does all of these stunts on stage. The extreme nature of the performance that he usually does works here. Whereas with Bill Moseley, it
1: doesn't. Bill Moseley, for me, the single worst performance in the entire movie. Like, truly, truly embarrassing in a way that is thoroughly unintentional. Mm. Yeah. If the Razzies were fair, he would be the one with the award instead of Paris Hilton.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I think Paris Hilton does a fine job here. She's somewhat playing herself she does the job
0: that she was hired to do and they exactly. hired the exact right person to do it
1: yeah yeah look paris hilton is not a good actress she never was a good actress no one never thought she was a good actress no but she's used here in a way that is that is clever because her worth to the production comes from being paris hilton rather than from being a good actress you know mm. she makes sense here because of her public image because of her images this sort of vacuous person as a person that's more about you know looks and style that makes a lot of sense for the cosmetic stuff and also that she is herself a wealthy heiress Mm. she works for all of these meta reasons in a sense that i think gives that that communicates a lot about that character pretty instantly in a way that i think makes her work in a way that the bill mosley character doesn't i mean the bill mosley character is i mean paris hilton brings her extracurricular stuff to it and Ogre brings, like, just sheer weirdness. But Mosley is the one that's sort of left with nothing yeah. to, like, latch onto.
0: Exactly, which is weird. He tries to match Ogre's level mm. in the weakest way.
2: Yeah, specifically in a song like Mark It Up, which is just an ugly piece of music, and mm. b- completely on purpose. Ogre just runs
1: rings around him. He always sounds like a petulant child. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to take him seriously because that's why Dad will leave the company to me! While
0: that is the character, the performance needed to be more than that to be engaging, you know? Yeah. It's surface level and honestly
2: embarrassing to watch. Mm. And I think Paris Hilton acquits herself reasonably with the music as well. Like, she's not great here, but...
0: Terrible singer.
2: Like, but that—that's also the point of the character. She's meant to be jealous of Blind Mag and not being able to actually justify it.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone here is terrible at no. like their singing. Mosley. Yeah, Mosley. As soon as I said, I thought, I'm oh, <laughs> oh maybe well, he's not, not right. even trying, though. Even Mosley, who yes, not not a great singer, but the songs he has, he gets to skate by. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, it reveals his inadequacies as a singer, but at the same time, it doesn't yeah. break the movie that he, he is not I mean, it's not like... I, I think Gerard Butler and Russell Crowe and, and Pierce Brosnan, they are better singers than some of the actors in this movie. But unlike um, the movies that they are in, Mamma Mia, Les Miserables, The Phantom of the Opera, a lot of the songs don't require them to be. Yeah. The, the people that need to be good singers have been cast with good singers. Yeah. People like yeah. Nathan, people like Sarah Brightman. I actually don't even think that Roddy needs to be played by a good singer. I think that the the opera bellowing is more of a flourish than something that is actually <laughs> necessary for the mm. songs.
2: But I do love how he's basically the villain from an opera. Mm. Like, with, with all the, like, I poisoned his wife, and I'm going to steal his daughter. That feels very, like, classical
1: storytelling. Oh, the whole thing feels very operatic and classical. Mm. I mean, there's a, a little bit of King Lear in it, isn't there? Is, is mm. the the ail- ailing patriarch trying to decide, you know, inheritance for the three kids. Yeah. I mean, it's not one-to-one, obviously, but, the, like, the idea is there, and the idea of, uh, as you said, the poisoning, they do draw on this very sort of grand canvas, mm. in a way that is very operatic, I think it justifies the name of Repo, the genetic opera, because it does have that kind of scale and scope of storytelling.
2: Yeah, and and it, it reprises moments, it uses leitmotifs. The music itself, performances aside, is so in-depth. They really sat down and they worked it out and they cared about each piece of music they were putting out. I read a review earlier today when I was looking at sort of the general reaction to this film and one person said that all of the songs sounded the same and it's like no each song has like a different thing that it's kind of going for but they all feel like a metal opera and I really enjoy that about it this can work both as a movie it can also just work as an album too Mm. which I think is the sign of a good musical that if you can sit down and you can feel like you can get the story just from the songs alone, it says a lot about how those songs were used as parts of the narrative. Mm. Like something like Moulin Rouge, you can kind of see a through line there because of how well put together, performed, and produced those songs were. Like most musicals start their lives as albums, as cast recordings, as that kind of thing, because most people are going to experience them as an album.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, was there anything else anyone wanted to cover?
1: I don't think so. I think that's mostly it.
0: Yep, that seems adequate to me.
1: <laughs> Why don't we now then move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow.
2: Knock, knock, who's there? Me!
1: <laughs> I'll start us off and I'll say that my MVP here. Oh. I think I've got to go with Sorvino. I mean, I'm just having so much fun whenever he's on screen. I'm having the most fun whenever he's on screen. He is nailing that character in a way that most of the cast aren't nailing their characters. That's, I mean, that's the movie I want. It's the movie that is the face-off between him and uh, Anthony Stewart Head as as Nathan. I mean, I'm always enjoying those bits a lot more than everything around them. And so uh, I'll give it to him because I really do think that he understands exactly what he's doing and what his role is, and he performs that role expertly. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I do have to give it, though, to Legal Assassin. That is my favourite song. It is the most... For me, it's the catchiest song. It's really well-performed by Anthony Stewart Head. It's probably his best performance in the movie, his best moment. And it's one of those songs that is rare for me in, in the film where the music and the lyrics both mostly work. I think it's a really... It showcases a lot of the musical style of this movie as well in a really interesting way. The sound, the mix of classicism with rock and and that stuff, I think, is well done there as well. So I've got to go with The Legal Assassin Number. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, Patriot Snake character actor John Lithgow, I actually, from some of the chatter that you guys were making before the movie, I think I might be the odd one out here because I'm actually going to go with Rotty. I... Think that he would be spectacular as Rotti. Like I said, I don't think that Salvino's opera chops are necessary to the character. I think that they are just a flourish. And whenever I picture Lithgow doing stuff like the weird rap on the ride to the graveyard, or the way he struts down the red carpet at the beginning of "We Invented This Opera Shit," shaking everyone's hands and looking like the cat that just ate the cream. You know, I love that in my head, and and so I've got to. Gotta go with Lithgow for the role of Rotty.
0: So for me, my MVP has to go to Anthony Stewart Head. I am always really engaged when he is singing Legal Assassin, Night Surgeon. All of that stuff is just really, really great work from him. He also holds himself incredibly well. How he changes between Nathan and the Repo Man. How he holds his face differently as each sort of mode. Of himself, I wouldn't say different personality. I'd say he moves the Nathan to the back of his head. Starts working on pure surgical instinct as the Repo man. I think he's just fantastic. He's, again, one of the strongest performers in this movie. And he is just fantastic here. My favorite scene or sequence has to go to Night Surgeon. I was gonna say Legal Assassin, but I just like the escalation of Night Surgeon. And plus, you're getting some of the Paul Sorvino in there... And I just love the whole sequence. It's it's one of the songs I go back to most. I like more of the songs here than Lawson does, but again, that still leaves me with only a few that I actually like. Who I would recast with John Lithgow. I was originally thinking the role of Nathan, but Lawson made a really compelling argument for him as Rottie, because Anthony Stewart Head has a striking resemblance to John Lithgow in certain moments of this film, like... The face shape is remarkably similar, you must agree.
2: Certain moments he looks like Lithgow, certain moments when he's, you know, slicked his hair back and he's putting on the vibe of the Repo Man, he kind of looks like Anthony Hopkins.
0: Those are the two modes he ha- Anthony Stewart Head has in the movie. John Lithgow and Anthony Hopkins. John Lithgow for the role of Rotty. I just love the idea of him strutting his stuff down that red carpet like he owns the entire world. And it's basically... Watching a John Lithgow versus
2: John Lithgow movie, which goes a long way for me. I mean, Raising Kane is one of our favourites.
1: <laughs> our first John Lithgow movie that we covered on this podcast.
2: Yep. yep, very much the beginning of this. The start of a beautiful
0: obsession.
2: For me, my MVP is Paul Savino. He is the most entertaining part of this film. I do want to give credit to Anthony Stewart Head, Sarah Brightman, and... Oddly enough, Paris Hilton, for bringing a lot of passion to this movie and all of that, Paul Savino elevates the material that he's given to such a place where it feels like proper opera. A song like Things You See in the Graveyard, a song like Gold, which has been on the rounds for me as one of my favourite songs from this, and one of my favourite pieces of quote-unquote opera. It's a fantastic performance. And he's just having the time of his life, and you can see it. My favorite scene or sequence, I think, will be Zydrate Anatomy. Just because it very much gives you the clear vibe of what this is about. It tells you everything you need to know about the world they're in. It pushes the plot forward by revealing that Mag is going to have her eyes repossessed. And... I love the production of the song. I love how you've got the double tracking of voices. The song just sounds gritty and nasty. And its vibe is impeccable. For who I would get John Lithgow as, I agree with you guys that Rotti is probably the best choice here, even though I love what Paul Savino's doing. I don't think Lithgow is able to put enough grit behind his singing voice to do the job that anthony stewart head does as nathan i guess i have to make him rotty because he's really the only character who i think his voice fits because obviously i've heard him singing in you know his very classic children's music albums and also (laughs) his part in pitch perfect i think this is the only role where the songs suit his voice so i think it'll go to that also the character fits him as well i think he can do that very warm to the camera but turn vile when the camera's not on him
0: so now we're going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro repo podcast lawson why don't you cast your vote first
1: i think it's pretty clear to people that my vote is not going to be a pro vote um it's not an anti-vote either like i said i really appreciate how ambitious this movie is even if it doesn't pull it off I think that it has too many strong elements and it has too many good actors in the forms of Anthony Stewart Head and Paul Savino. It has too much good music for me to ever be anti. And I could never really be anti something that swings for the fences so boldly. I always like it when a movie tries something. When even if it's not a success, it does something really out of left field. And this definitely does. Like I said, I don't think it is... 100% successful. In fact, I would say it hovers at around maybe a 55% to 60% success rate for me. But the fact that it is attempting it at all is enough to win a ton of goodwill from me. So there I am, right in the middle.
0: For me, I'm ambivalent as well. There's too much great stuff, but also too many shortcomings for me to be anywhere else. The whole point of this segment is... For the movies that we are anti for, it's movies that have no reason for being. It's movies that should not have been made. This is a movie that I'm glad was made. This is a movie that swings for the fences and, yeah, it bites off too much that it can chew. But I'm so glad at this bold, daring project. And, yeah, I'm just ending up ambivalent.
2: I'm gonna be our only pro vote for this because I see past all of the shortcomings... And I see the nuggets of gold in here. It is gruesome, gothic, punk. There are true moments of ugliness, but they are contrasted so beautifully by the really pretty moments of songs like Chase the Morning, of the vocal performance of Sarah Brightman, the absolute brilliant operatic... Brilliance of Paul Savino and the stage musical slash heavy metal stylings of someone like Anthony Stewart Head, who brings a lot of rock to his voice in this. I'm pro this. I, I understand its shortcomings, but it does too much right for me to for me to be ambivalent.
0: So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro repo podcast. Aww. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at extra do the candy Counting if I join myself in on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episodes, specific feedback, and movie recommendations. What do you think about Repo the Genetic Opera? What was your favourite song? Who's your favourite character? And are you also just all inspired by the fact Paul Savino is here in the first place? Uh, which again is somewhat miraculous in and of itself. Tell us all that on the Twitter. You could also leave us comments on the podcast apps. Just keep in mind that on certain apps, it's for the show on the whole. On others, it is for specific episodes. Your mileage simply varies depending on what service you use. You can also like, rate, and subscribe on those podcast apps. If you do, it reflects well on the algorithms with which we live our lives. The future has become hazy. I I'm having trouble seeing what's coming, but I don't have any predictions for you this week. It's strange. It always comes so clearly sometimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so clearly.
2: So, Lawson, what do we have next week? We know but the audience is somewhat unaware, so why don't you pull the band-aid off?
1: Oh, well, hold on tight, spider monkeys, because we are taking on perhaps our biggest episode yet. Five movies in one episode. We'll be talking about the entire Twilight saga (laughs) next week. (laughs) I am so looking forward to this. I have thoughts, and I'm sure you two do as well. It should be a lot of fun. If you would like to follow along at home... Every movie in this franchise is available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now. Also for rental and purchases in a variety of places, but since there are five movies, I'm not going to bother to do that this week. You're on your own. Figure it out.
2: (laughs) If you can find one of them on a thing, you can find the others.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty stoked for next week's episode.
0: Looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Join us next week as we do a deep dive into the entire Twilight Saga, spanning five movies. The fourth and fifth are a uh, part one and part two, as was the custom at the time. Like wearing an onion on your belt in the 40s. Yeah,
2: we're <laughs> going to be talking about five movies with plot
0: enough for three. <laughs> I have been Harley Lewis.
1: I've been Losantini. And
0: I
2: have I been, die. and I will continue to
1: be Sean Lewis. Awesome.
2: <laughs>